No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me again this week on the program is nobody. Uh, This week I wanted to continue my look at consciousness after death and what exactly is happening there. Uh, It is... Uh, further investigation after last week's examination into it of more of the idiosyncrasies of it and what I've encountered as I've tried to delve further into this issue because as we will quickly see um, a lot of weird nuance here this is very strange territory to dig into especially after uh, you know spending 10 episodes straight digging into the no pun intended the practicalities of uh, funerals what they are how they operate and what we do as people so before I get into all of that I would as always like to say Thank you for listening. It always means the world to me that there is anybody out there in the grand humanity, all seven point some billion of us that literally anybody would take the time to listen to this, especially during for what is um, my part of the world, the holiday season. Uh, It just is crazy that (laughs) I'm very intentionally just throwing this out into the ether and thinking, yeah, if it benefits anybody, but that's just a benefit. That's literally, okay, that's great. Uh, It's mostly as an exercise for myself to kind of put some of this stuff down on wax and figure out what do I believe? What are some of the things that I hold dear? How do I chew on some of this stuff? And rather than just keeping a journal, here I am talking into a microphone and putting it on the internet for all posterity and, you know, ruining career options for me down the road, I suppose. That being said, uh, last week was Thanksgiving. And uh, for anybody that's not familiar with that, uh, it's a whole American thing about being with family and giving thanks for the things that you have in your world and your life. And for my uh, small family here, me, my wife, and my child, we made the annual trek out to my parents' place in Wisconsin and saw my, uh, my nuclear family. And it was a really good time to just do exactly that, be with your people and be thankful for the things that you have and spend some time reconnecting. The, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the joys of Midwestern living, there was inevitably a snowstorm right before we left. And so it was always, it's, it's without fail, it's never just clear sailing. It's always, can we, can we not? What's going to happen with the weather? Are the roads going to be safe? Like, eh, it's just, I've learned to, as I've talked about um, <laughs> over the course of this podcast and uh, specifically last week, I've learned to live in ambiguity and not, um, not have things settled and not have to just give hard and fast answers of this is the way it is and we are doing this like um i just it is what it is we'll figure it out you know there's no guarantee until you get to the moment well we'll see if the storm comes and if it does it does and if it doesn't it doesn't and we'll just go through it so thankfully for us we were not significantly impacted we were able to just back up the car and uh make our way out there i will say the timing has been unfortunate for me because I made the mistake of introducing Frozen to my child. And as a result, in the last 10 days, I think I have heard or seen uh, the movie in some capacity or the soundtrack. I'm not kidding. No less than between 50 and 75 times. You know, once kids latch onto a thing, they really, really latch onto it. And I'm not one to deny a child something that they're asking for within reason of like, do you want to listen to music? Sure. What would you like to listen to? This. Okay. Why not? Uh, Well, the trouble is I literally can't meditate now without having the soundtrack just looping in my mind. Like I, I thought maybe if I just like 
let the song kind of resolve, like, oh, just let it play to its end, and then what does my mind do? Cruel trickster that it is, it just loops it back over and starts the song over as though there's no end. It's just one endless repeat. So kind of wish I didn't do that. However, what I had said additionally is that uh, Halloween to Thanksgiving is a really difficult time for me just because it's kind of a gray, nasty time of year where not a lot of goodness happens, really. It's just, it's everything's kind of died and there's no snow yet really and it's just it's kind of a just it's the the calendar time of year to get the blahs you just you get the morbs you get you just feel gross but it's I'm I'm happy to say as somebody who feels jaded and cynical a lot and you know actively tries to work against that as soon as Thanksgiving passes when we get into the uh, quote-unquote Christmas season or holiday season here there's this weird little bit of magic that comes back and I really kind of love it. I'm not a huge Christmas person, but it just feels different. You know, and the trade-off is as soon as New Year's happens, it's even worse than that period between uh, between Halloween and Thanksgiving because then after New Year's, you got nothing until uh, Valentine's Day, really. And then, you know, it's just, it's fun to have a thing to look forward to, I guess is what I'm driving at, so... Before I dive further in, uh, if you've got questions, comments, feedback, concerns, uh, legal affidavits you need sent to me to say stop what you're doing, send everything to yourdead2 at gmail.com, Y-O-U-R-E-D-E-A-D-T-O-O at gmail.com, or reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm out there engaging with the cesspool that is the uh, internet at large. It's, oh boy, it's a whole thing. Um... But happy to engage on that, happy to include comments and whatever. Still working on the listener feedback episode and gathering questions because sometimes those come in, sometimes they slow down, and I want to make sure I've got good stuff and I'm covering the appropriate stuff. Anyway, uh, without further ado, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Let's get into consciousness after death. Okay, here we go. So we talked last week about a number of different things pertaining to the human conscious mind and what happens after the biological process stops. And what I've been running into is (laughs) exactly what inspired me to go on this particular bend in the program as well as what I viewed as kind of the wheel of life occasionally grinding you down and then lifting you back up and grinding you back down and lifting you back up. This is why I was a philosophy major in college, for better or for worse. I love talking about this stuff, but it is so difficult to nail down any kind of terminology. It's really... (laughs) The inherent nature of it is so ephemeral and difficult to grasp. It's like... It's not even the notion that when you step back on a grand scale that the brain is this organ of your body that named itself because that's where the thinking comes from supposedly, but that I think of it as when you put two mirrors together to make an infinitely long hallway based on the reflection, you can't look into it. You know, you can kind of peek your eye into it and get a sense of like, oh, there goes like down the corridor, but you can't look into it without obstructing it actively. It's very difficult to measure the very thing that does the measuring, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. There's, 
<laughs> what we're going to see here is a whole lot of nuance that I may or may not possess the vocabulary or um, perspicacity to properly delve into. So I'll do as best I can, but I'm quickly running into the notion of, ooh, how do we actually approach this? Because as I mentioned last week, I was stunned to find out uh, internal monologue or you know, self-talk is not a universal constant. I would have thought that that's a much more universal thing. And like I had said in, um, I think I alluded to this last week, that the characteristics of voices heard and hallucinations experienced when one has a specific type of schizophrenia, that in Western and particularly American culture, they're very aggressive... Um, threatening or potentially harmful voices or guiding forces that a person experiences, whereas in uh, some African cultures, for example, they're much more playful and much more um, not benevolent, but benign maybe, and not as uh, dark and foreboding. So it's, this is all, <laughs> this, me even talking about this makes all sorts of presuppositions, but uh, before I get too far out my own head about doing all this, let me just quickly clarify. I'm not just looking at the biological uh, cessation aspect of this. You know, we talked about the guillotine and how when you lop somebody's head off fast enough and clean enough, there are recorded instances of uh, curiosity seekers or doctors trying to work with their... Um, patients is not right, um, subjects, I guess, inmates, um, that they would try to get their attention or like clap their hands to wake them back up. And you could kind of get a reaction up until like 10 seconds after the head is detached from the body that they're, you know, the, the physical mechanism still happens, but that's not necessarily what I'm looking at. What I'm looking for more so is that very intangible ephemeral, like what, what is this? What's happening? So, in in looking at this, <laughs> there's just this inherent amount of egocentrism that I'm going to be running into, and I just I'm just trying <laughs> trying to acknowledge it and put it out there and know that it's a part of it. It's it is what it is, and I'm you know I I can't you know I talked about the the limitations of the hardwiring of our brain. There's more to it than that, but it's definitely I'm going to be. I can only approach this from my own human experience, and granted, I've only got 36 years on the planet, and I'm not in any way trying to claim any sort of special insight, but rather, this is something that I like digging into and something that I'm very comfortable approaching. You know, I don't have the fear of going down into the basement to talk about this stuff, as opposed to many people who, rightfully so, are apprehensive, because it, it I don't know, weirds them out, gives them the heebie-jeebies to think, what happens when we die? So... <laughs> Another thing I keep running into is the um, that relentless comforting smugness of atheism on the internet, and uh, it's just this amazing thing where if you go down any particular avenue to find out what happens when we die, if you ask a crowd of any kind, you know, a, an open source on the internet, you're going to get this inherent knee-jerk reaction of like, nothing, obviously, duh, that's what happens. There was nothing before, nothing afterwards, as sure as my next footstep is going to not sink through the earth, like... It's, I definitely was that guy. 
I was 100% staunchly that guy, adamantly, vehemently, vocally, obnoxiously for a long time. Um, I was, you know, if you've followed along to this point or if you've binged, I'm sorry, and caught up to this point, uh, had a fairly religious upbringing, one that was thankfully very um, open to questioning. You know, my parents never shied me away from asking questions or finding out on my own, like, what does this mean? Well, I don't know, find out, what do you think? You know, so they were always open to questioning the rules. As I got older, I went through my my typical college phase of angsty youth, man, and nobody knows what it's like. So I, I've, I'm happy to report I've gotten past a lot of that. Um, and I do work concertedly towards avoiding cynicism or uh, being jaded. You know, it's, it's hard not to let your daily operations, the efficiency of the mind in dealing with the crap that the world throws at you, uh, numb you down into something that gives you a very narrow scope of the world. I've really worked hard to open back up in spite of that and be as open-minded as possible. But it, I still, if I want to apply a rational lens to this, I have to kind of work with the tools that I have here. So I can I can certainly see where that mindset comes from, that there is, if we're considering empirical evidence, you know, based on an empirical mindset, meaning if we're looking at the evidence that we have that we can point to concretely and say, this happens, we know that people are alive and awake and talking to each other and displaying this semblance of sentience. And, you know, I think therefore I am that we don't see corpses doing that, and we don't have any real record of people coming back substantially verifiably from the dead to say, you know, I'm back further than a near-death experience or um, anything further than a coma. You know, it's it's really hard to get past that when the very thing that does the measuring or the very thing that does the observation is part and parcel what's going on so it's i can and again and then the internet on top of that is really a big echo chamber for a lot of things and i'm certainly uh no saint when it comes to that either that you find yourself surrounded by like-minded uh people and as a result you start to reinforce your own ideas but i i'm not casting aspersions onto that mindset of just dead over that's it I get that, and there are I vacillate to that and back often in my daily waking life because there's a certain amount of comfort to that. I didn't know what it was to be existing before I was born. Why would I know what it was after death? But I, there's no guarantee to that. That's the whole – this is why I'm so <laughs> like a dog with a bone. I don't want to let this go. I just – I want to – find out more, you know, in a non-self-threatening, self-harming way. Um, what I can say, which will no doubt piss off a lot of people, is uh, do what I experienced people doing in uh, college courses, which was, as a father, I find that blah, 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 blah. You'd always have these parents coming in and auditing classes as, uh, you know, experienced adults surrounded by a bunch of 20-somethings, and it was always just, oh, God, here we go, grinding the class to a halt to hear somebody's life experience take on what it means to be a blah. It was the worst. And now I, of course, have the 15 years post-college of life experience, and I can 1,000% see where that comes from because I have seen the 
for lack of a better term, the emergence of consciousness. I have a kid, you know, and it's not... I'm, I'm always walking this line of trying to be open about who I am and what goes on in my life, but still offering um, a semblance of privacy or anonymity to those who haven't really consented to being on here, and I don't want to subject my family to that. And my wife is uh, aware of what goes on here on the podcast, but I don't... <laughs> I'm not trying to spill her information, and she knows that I would like to have her on at some point, but I want it to be the right time and the right place so that we talk about the right things and not just kind of a husband and wife kvetching about the day. Um, but having a Bambino, uh, when she was born, she was, you know, a little baby and kind of an on or off state. If you've seen the movie Inside Out, it's not unlike as simple as it was portrayed in that movie of just there is happy and there is sad, and there are two ways to interact with the world. You either show happiness and smiles and giggles, or you are crying, because those are the only ways that you know how to interact with the world. Everything, everything, everything before that was provided in utero. You know, the existence was entirely different. And uh, former guest Annie on the podcast talked about um, believing in life, life after birth. You know, the the example she gave, that was a really cool thing that I hadn't considered. That that's this really limited, specific way that babies interact with the world. And as time marches on, they begin to interact in a way that shows the development of this consciousness. And I've... I've seen it emerge, you know, I've seen it go from <laughs> the on-off of the baby where it's just like they spend a ton of time sleeping. That was a wild thing that you don't realize before you're a parent, just like how much time babies actually do sleep, um, provided they're of the right temperament and mindset and not colicky, and that's a whole separate problem. Um, but as time has marched on, uh, <laughs> I want to make a comparison here, and I will apologize immediately before I say this. Um, I don't mean to disparage any human at all. I don't mean to disparage any animal lover. But what I can say, and I mean this out of love and respect for my child, that um, my wife and I had a cat for 12 years named Friday, and she was just shy of being a dog. She was this big, goofy, Maine Coon cat that is... This particular breed is big and goofy and absurd and just a big clown of a cat. They're very intelligent. It would, you know, it was really fun to interact with this thing that was just very lots of personality. Uh, you could really get a sense for who the cat was and how she would interact with the world, whether or not she had deep, complex consciousness the same way that we do. You could certainly see patterns of behavior and learn how to interact with her and like. Um, setting things as off limits or like, you know, closing doors or like if I came down here to record when I had the cat, she would not be happy with it. She'd be sticking her paw under the door and trying to get me to come out and like interacting with me. But uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we hit a point with a child that I realized, uh-oh, she has now surpassed cat intelligence. Uh, granted, as of this recording, my daughter is still not yet three years old and uh, – I'm still seeing more and more stuff as her consciousness and her awareness and interaction with the world is, uh, it's astounding to suddenly see like, oh, you get this. You, oh, okay. Like abstract concepts coming online. I remember the first time she pointed at something and said, I like this. It was just terrifying because it, 
showed that she had the concept of this is a thing and unlike things that I don't like, I like this thing. And she had the ability to convey that to me and it just it, – this level of awareness and this nuance of her personhood was just so like – Okay, suddenly this is, uh, the arms race has gone another level up that we have to, like, you are dealing with something that's online in a way that you've not been in charge of before. <laughs> and thankfully, um, we've been able to keep ahead of her, but there will be a day that she outpaces us. But it's just, it's wild to see that happen, and it only becomes more and more of a thing where, uh, she remembers stuff and asks for stuff that, is not at the front of my mind. Like, what on earth are you talking about? And then realizing, oh, oh, you want this thing? Oh, yeah, okay, you're right. That's exactly what it is. That was a very literal description, but I will give you this thing that you are asking for. Like, it's just, it's so wild to see this stuff happen. And I know I'm not treading new ground as a parent talking about their child on the internet, but like, it's just in this particular subject matter, seeing how consciousness progresses from such a limited interaction in the world to something that's so nuanced already just within a couple of years, as my wife pointed out the other night, that the time that we've had with her, if you multiply it by four, what was it? No, four of the more, anyway, the point was in X number of years, she's going to be driving a car, which is wild like that is woof that I, mm, yeah. <laughs> i'm amazed my parents ever let me drive and i'm i'm good enough to not get myself killed yet uh hopefully by the time my daughter is driving we'll have more uh widespread self-driving cars and uh it won't be so much of a thing we'll just you know you step into a moving vehicle and i don't want to think about having to drive um but this does actually point me towards the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which was something that I talked about with Brenda Hartman when she was on, uh, which is an awesome two-part episode when she talks about being a, uh, a death and dying counselor and working with the grieving. Um, she mentioned several times Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And I made note of it back at the time when we were talking and hadn't gotten around to reading it until I got a reminder from another friend uh, who was reading it and it was a kicker of like, oh, right, I do have to read that book. And so, Brenda, I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I have read it. It was fantastic, and it had some insight related to kids as well. But the the notion that – so Michael Pollan was the guy who wrote Fast Food Nation and The Omnivore's Dilemma, among other things. And in this particular book, he examines consciousness, mental states, and how uh, – what he loosely refers to as psychedelics or conscious altering drugs specifically in the hallucinogenic or mind specifically altering sense not like um, antidepressants but more so like uh, psilocybin mushrooms or um, the advent of lsd in a laboratory or uh, the isolation of dmt from nature like how these different things affect how your mind operates and the neuroplasticity of it and what the medical applications of them are because they have been so bizarrely shunned from the medical community post-Nixon era hippie crushing. So without sounding like I'm drinking too much of the Kool-Aid, it was a phenomenal read and it, it does get kind of bogged down in a middle portion of it talking about some of the chronological... Um, Time frames of who did what when and just kind of movements of different uh, groups of things in the 60s and 70s, but overall a phenomenal book, fascinating in how it approaches consciousness, and certainly I've got experience from my own 
life experience that I'd like to be able to talk about at a further point in the podcast of um, how these drugs affect our mindset. Uh, but I'm a little apprehensive to just tear the lid off that. For, give, again, given the sake that it, I would like to um, continue to be employable, I don't know, statute of limitations on drug consumption, um, someone who is not me may be uh, able to tell more. But um, what happens by and large is that there's this this mental state that we are given rise to when exposed to certain things. And I've made passing reference in the past to the ability to cause electrochemical change in the brain in certain laboratory experiments that causes feelings of mysticism or feelings of spirituality or profundity uh, that can be essentially artificially induced. And some of what Michael Pollan goes into is that these states can and often are induced by consumption of psychedelic or psyche-altering drugs that seem to have evolved to serve some sort of benefit. The question is, how did these mushrooms evolve to have this seemingly as a defense mechanism? Or what does this do? Why did this thing evolve this ability to change something in human brains and it, it it certainly touches on uh the stoned ape theory that i believe terence mckenna put out that animals that were ingesting something similar would be given rise to this mindset of i don't know religiosity or mysticism basically spiritual feelings that allowed or fostered an environment in which abstract concepts or abstract thought could be constructed, that language was given rise to out of basically stoned apes figuring out saying a word to mean something that's not in front of them. Um, and there's, obviously, I'm way oversimplifying this, but that's that's a, a part of the thrust of the book. Um, additionally, there's talk of uh, how different drugs affect consciousness and religious feelings, um, and particularly uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that um, I'm on some right now. I've been on some different things in the past, but I was on Zoloft for quite a while. I've been on Prozac lately. Um, it seems to be working. I've questioned it in the past. Um, you know, I, I look into it to see, like, how am I feeling now and how, am I, how was I feeling then? I'm finding I'm personally on a good dose now that seems to be effective in managing my anxiety and depression, and yet I'm also finding just uh, a steady course of exercise and meditation and better eating uh, and, you know, abstaining from alcohol, those really also help balance those things out. So maybe I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm also not a doctor, so take everything I'm saying with a huge grain of salt. But I can say, having uh, been for most of my life not on an antidepressant and then starting a significant period where I have been on antidepressants, there is something lost in the magical sense of wonder. Like I have been a musician my entire life and some of the magic that I attributed to music or some of the mystic feeling of the importance of music or like the kind of ethereal and tangible aspect to it 
it really did feel like it was clamping down on something, that it was robbing me of a full experience. And after a while, you kind of forget what that full experience was. And so I think of myself as having a 100% authentic experience listening to music, yet I'm still thinking that there's a part of me in the back of my mind saying, yeah, but if you weren't on medication and you listened to this album, you'd have an even more profound experience listening to it and you'd feel it more. It's kind of hard to put into words, but that's that's the same thing that I've been talking about this whole episode about what goes on with conscious states. So I don't know. But then again, with Christmas coming on like this, there does seem to be a little bit of magic in the air. I don't... I don't know. It's it's hard to talk about this stuff without sounding just real, <laughs> really out there and wackadoo and woo woo. You know, I'm, and if you're woo woo, please don't, uh, please know that I'm not intending offense there. But uh, write in, rebut, and let me know what I could be learning about this that I shouldn't be so disparaging about. Because I, I, again, I want to be open about these things. It's just I, I'm only learning from my own experience here, and there's only so much that people can talk about their experience of consciousness to gather from it. It's like, um, I think Steve Martin said, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. It's like, it just, it, it doesn't translate. You, you can never really fully one-to-one do the thing. So, um, but to tie back to the notion of kids, what they had noticed in, um, MRI imaging, or it's redundant, uh, imaging of the mental states, you know, using, very advanced science and computers to look at the mental states that arise when people are normal, quote-unquote, or under the influence of a uh, psilocybic trip. Um, There are certain mental states that are given rise to that seem to, you know, differ from, quote-unquote, normal consciousness, and that those states are actually very similar to childhood mental states, that children are not as closed off as adults are. And I know we've kind of talked about that in the past, but it ties back into a further notion that I've made about, not further notion, a further point that I've made about kids being, having been more recently non-existent, have a different take on it than adults do, that they're also their consciousness in and of itself is less laser-focused like a beacon as adults have but that it's more of a lantern, like an awareness of all things around them that isn't so locally focused on just one thing at a time that kids are really, you can't get them to sit down, sit still, and just look at a book because they're looking at all stuff. They're getting all sorts of input, and they haven't learned how to filter out what's not important yet. That So I it's starting to get to the point of what I want to really be digging into and unpacking, but it just, it requires so much legwork to get there that I'm, (laughs) I am certainly not regretting doing this. I can tell you that much. I am absolutely fascinated by what all of this means and what further research into this will mean because I love talking about this stuff. I love digging into it and I love finding out more. It's just a matter of how do we do this? And something that really baked my noodle from reading this book was the idea that consciousness, maybe it's not housed entirely in the brain. And what I had potentially incorrectly assumed for much of my life, even after getting my degree as a uh, philosophy major in college, that everything that I read (laughs) there, and granted it was a very Catholic institution, 
was pointing to both your conscious experience being housed within the brain or in your biological entity as a certain matter, of course, but then that there was this epiphenomenon, this this additional layer of experience or beingness in addition to or on top of that that is more akin to yourself. And some of that may... I've got two points going here at once that I want to talk about. One of them is that more and more I'm reading, maybe that's not the case. What if the brain is less of a housing unit and more of a radio antenna? That's one thing that I wanted to talk about. And the other is the notion of the default mode network, which is a mental state that comes to rise when we are, for better or worse, daydreaming. So this this sense of I-ness or me-ness or you know, the ego of being is not necessarily this little thing that lives within you, but that it's kind of a mental state that is like a default program running in the background of a computer that if there's no heavy lifting to be done, you're allowed to kind of let the mind wander and there it is and you have this ego thinking, well, yeah, but I'm hungry and I want to do this. But these drugs that uh, Michael Pollan writes about seem to disrupt the normal flux between default mode network being active and not in that it the dissolution of the ego, whether or not you're actually going somewhere on a trip, uh, that there is something being genuinely experienced, whether or not it's some kind of -of out-of-body experience, but you're certainly experiencing a different mental state than simple normal consciousness in that the drug trip is not just a literal hallucination, but that there is something happening. There is a neurological, chemical change that's happening in the brain that we haven't been investigating as much as we could have been due to some of the fallout of hippie culture in uh, the 60s and 70s, and as a result, the removal of these things from the medical community. So what is the point? Why am I talking about all this stuff on a podcast about death? So these mental states that we're talking about, these questions of what is the self, what is happening, what is being... what is that? Where is that going? Maybe it's not just a light being turned off at the end of your life. Maybe it's not just a lamp being switched, but that your radio antenna turns off and that signal goes elsewhere out into the ether and that you're not tied to this one thing anymore. Um, you know, to use the old adage, I'm, I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants here. I'm not claiming any grand, uh, miraculous breakthrough in thinking, but just kind of putting different pieces together here that um, I don't know. I think that's what we're looking at here, and that's that's really what I wanted to be talking about this whole episode. So it's laying a lot of groundwork to get here, I know. So thank you for listening and sticking with me to this point, but what happens then when we flatline? And I've had people on talk about their experiences dying, and 
you know, the trick is they were on to talk about it. So they were still alive. So they died and they came back or they died and not fully died. And, you know, there's, there's all this weird nuance to it that we can't quite unpack without experiencing it ourselves subjectively to have any kind of insight into it. There are things that doctors will do or tests that will be done where they'll place images or, you know, the equivalent of like flashcards above somebody who is undergoing a risky surgery to see, okay, in the event that you unfortunately pass away during this procedure and you, ha if you are able to come back, tell us what was on the card that we can't see looking up at it, like if it's on the other side of the light upstairs, what was this thing? And there are instances of people being able to report with some accuracy, oh, it's a picture of a tree, and they're like, how in the hell can you see that? But this is some of the information that came up in Michael Pollan's book that somehow your consciousness supposedly detunes off of the main signal of your body and you are seeing yourself beyond your physical limitation that there your consciousness leaks kind of and i know i'm making some real wild weird jumps here but it's i don't know and this is why i want to find out more this is just this is weird stuff and i love it because we don't know until we until we experience it ourselves that's that's the grand mystery of it and it really um something that they talked about quite a bit in the book was this the effect of uh these hallucinatory trips on the de the dying that it was immensely helpful for these people to experience these trips and have kind of a decentralizing ego death that help them understand death is not the end, that it's just a transition, that everything is love. And you would have reports of people who are vehemently non-religious talking about seeing you know, the face of God, that it was a loving thing, a loving experience. The universe itself is this loving, all-connected thing, and it's just so tantalizing to think that these things are there and we're just kind of starting to get back into figuring out what's going on after decades of neglecting them. So at the risk of getting further lost in the weeds here, I'm going to put a pin in it for there. But if you are at all curious, please follow Brenda Hartman's advice. Read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. I uh, got my copy at the local library. I'm sure you can find yours there as well. Also available wherever you buy books, Kindle, Amazon, you know, whatever, you know, whatever venue you're getting your books from, check it out. Uh, extremely worth it. Very interesting and extremely applicable to not only what we're talking about here, but to the overall concept of the podcast as well. So I can see why uh, Brenda brought it up. So thank you. And again, my apologies for taking so long to get to it, but that's why I wanted to finally talk about it here. So going on, I will continue to dig into consciousness after death next week. But uh, thank you for listening while I try to lay some groundwork to figure out what in the hell we are talking about. Because if I just start ranting about detuning the radio, I, you know, good chance I'm going to lose some people if I haven't already. So thank you. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, find me online uh, at Gmail, Twitter, Instagram. I'm out there willing to talk. Uh, otherwise, thank you so much. And I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.